Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. In the middle of the day today, 33 kids that did things on the piano, and uh, and so time that I'm usually spent here, I was spent, of course, that recital, listening and such, and so enjoying that, but I feel like the Lord has spoke uh, to us here this evening. We talked about nothing is impossible. I'm going to talk to you about an impossibility. I'm going to talk to you about an impossibility tonight. Second Kings chapter number 6 and verse number 15, starting here tonight. Amen. The Bible says... And King Ahaz commanded Urijah, the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering. And the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land. And their meat offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the brazen altar. So we understand right away he wasn't talking about the brazen altar when he was talking about this altar, which already poses a problem because there was only one altar should have been in the house of the Lord. And he said, and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. The Bible says in verse 16, thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Now if you'll turn to Matthew 6, I want to pluck just one verse of scripture out of the Sermon on the Mount that Christ had preached there from that mount, not only to his disciples, but anyone that was in listening distance. He stated these words in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. Tonight, with the help of the Holy Ghost, I'd like to minister this subject this evening, the impossibility of divided allegiance. The impossibility of divided allegiance. Brother Cook, can you join me on the platform? I feel by myself up here. If you can come join me, I'd appreciate that tonight. Amen. Amen? The impossibility of divided allegiance. Hallelujah. Amen. All my, all my helpers are not here. Well, I'm not saying anything against you. I'm just saying the ones that normally sit right there are not there. Amen. God, help us. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight. God, we're grateful, Lord, for your love and your mercy and your grace. I pray, oh, Lord, we're thankful for the songs that have went forth in this place. God, Lord, the singing, Lord, the playing. I pray, oh, Lord, the worship. I pray, oh, Lord, tonight, touch my mind. Help me, oh, Lord, God, to speak, Lord, the words of the Lord. God, to do so, God, with the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Lord Jesus, upon my lips, Lord, and my voice. God, that we could glean something, Lord, from your holy word here. This evening, and we'll be grateful and thankful to you for it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ. That I pray, Amen and Amen. The church say Amen, Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and as my custom is, I always repeat my title: the impossibility of divided allegiance. Just to uh, define some terms for us here this evening: allegiance is a noun that means loyalty or the obligation of loyalty as to a nation a sovereign, or a cause. Divided allegiance then would mean someone having a loyalty to two 
or more different causes, two or more different quote-unquote sovereigns or nations. Their loyalty then on that premise would be incomplete because it would be divided. With that being said, and tonight I'm not trying to strike a political chord with anybody because this can be a controversial issue, what I'm about ready to state. Consider, if you will, the words of Theodore Roosevelt from years ago regarding the assimilation of immigrants into the American culture. This is nothing but a little bit of a compilation of a letter that was written shortly before he died in January in the year of 1919, just a few months even after World War I. And this is what Mr. Roosevelt said. He said, in the first place, he said, we should insist that if an immigrant who comes here in good faith becomes an American and assimilates himself to us, he shall be treated on an exact equality with everyone else. For it is an outrage to discriminate against any such man because of creed or birthplace or origin. But this is predicated upon the person's becoming in every facet an American and nothing but an American. There can be no divided allegiance here. Any man who says he is American but something else also isn't an American at all. He says we have room but for one flag, the American flag. We have room but for one language here and that is the English language and we have room for but one sole loyalty and that is loyalty to the American people. I believe what Mr. Roosevelt was getting at was this, is that he understood that America was by virtue of her beginning the blending of various nationalities, the beginning and the blending of various origins. And he knew that immigrants would come to America with hopes and dreams of gaining something that their native lands evidently did not have or could not offer them. And so evidently with those perks in their foresight, they were important enough for these people to uproot their families and jeopardize many of them their lives across thousands of miles of sea to start anew in the good old USA. What Mr. Roosevelt was asking, he was not asking these people to deny their, where they were born, but he wanted them to acknowledge where they were going to live. He frequently spoke of his belief that immigrants should, that were taking up residence in the United States should assimilate into American society just as quickly as possible. He, he tried to get away from those hyphenated national identities as Italian-American or German-American. He declared that the primary allegiance that they should have to the nation if they're going to become a part of the United States is become American, be an American person. He said the immigrant has to consider the interests of the United States. He must be made to see that there are some grand opportunities that this country can afford him if he'll observe the American standards. He stated there's not room in this country for any 50-50 American, nor can there be but one loyalty, and that is to the stars and stripes. I believe the Apostle Paul of the New Testament had a similar concept or idea concerning the church of the living God. He shared his view with us and it was very adamant view of his concerning divided allegiances that we read of in the New Testament scripture of Galatians and Colossians. The Bible says in Galatians 3, 26, the apostle Paul writing, he says, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek 
There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. He follows that up, writing to the church of Colossae in Colossians 3 and 10. He says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. He said, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. I believe what Paul was relaying was this. He understood that the body of Christ was a blending of the, of the bond and of the free. The blending of the Jew and of the, uh, the Gentile and of the male and the female. But there wasn't to be any, if I could say it like this, there wasn't to be any per se Jewish Christians or, or Gentile Christians. They were just all under the umbrella of being Christians. These people had become a part of the body of Christ. And in doing so, they were to take off the old man and put on the new man. Paul's not saying you got to deny, amen, where you were born or how you were born of being a sinner. He says, but I do want you to acknowledge where you're living right now and where your feet are presently standing as being born again of the water and the spirit. He said, that has to be on the forefront of your mind. You can't live this new life with constantly on your mind what you were born into, into this world. He said, because you were born in as a sinner. He said, but you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. He says, you got to lose your old life into this new life. So there wasn't a notion, according to the apostle Paul, of being a, a Greek today and then a Christian tomorrow. That wasn't the concept he was looking at. He said, we got to be daily assim assimilated to this new life of being a Christian, a life of Christ, live in the power and the glory of his resurrection. And so he's saying to the church, churches there, Christians, he said, your primary allegiance then should now be to God. Your primary allegiance, what you bow down to, what you lift hand to, it's not your own life, who you were, Greek or Gentile, it does not matter, but your allegiance should be to the Lord Jesus Christ, and his interest should be your interest. What he propagates, you should take upon your shoulders. The opportunities that he has afforded to you are numerous and many. If you'll just observe his standards and his ways and his precepts, God really has something for you. I think Paul was saying there's no allowance for a 50-50 Christian. There's only room for one loyalty and that's to God. Someone say amen. And God is certain about this throughout the pages of scripture. God is very certain about his own sovereignty and he's very certain about his own aloneness. If I may, Isaiah 43 and 10, he says, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God form, neither shall there be after me I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44 and 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. Verse eight, fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Isaiah 45 and verse five, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee though thou hast not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is none else. God is very sure and confident about his 
aloneness, if you will. He said in verse 18 of that same chapter, I am the Lord and there is none else. In verse 21, he said, there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And he talks about this over and over and over. For I am God and there is, there's none else. There's none beside me. I don't know another. God is very, very purposeful trying to get that in the minds of his people that there isn't another. There isn't none to compare to him. He's alone beside him. There is not another. He's confident about this. Wants his people to be confident about this. And so you don't turn too many pages into the holy book to discover that God then is a jealous God. He says in Exodus 34 and verse 13, he says, but ye shall destroy their altars, speaking of those of pagan gods, which were really no gods at all. Their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. He says, for, because thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the idea of a jealous God or God being jealous. The old root word means that to become intensely red. He's a jealous God. It almost refers to the changing of the color of a face. You've perhaps seen that before in real life, the, the intensity of redness that comes upon someone's face, the rising of heat of emotions in someone's face. But as from my understanding, though, this word jealous and the word zealous both come from the same Hebrew and the same Greek word, being that jealousy and zealous are essentially the same thing, that God is not only a jealous God, he is a zealous God, meaning this, that he's eager about protecting what is precious to him. And whether you know it or not, that encompasses everybody that's set inside this building tonight. He is zealous. He is, he is eager about protecting what is precious to him. God being a jealous God is like a powerful and merciful king who takes, and this is what in essence happened as described in scripture, who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame and forgives her and marries her and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, of a queen, if you will. And his jealousy does not rise from the fear or from the weakness, but it rises from a holy indignation of not having his honor and power and mercy, having all that scorned by a faithlessness of a fickle spouse or a fickle wife. That's the jealousy of God. It's not that he has an ego to protect. It's not that he's afraid or that he's weak, but he's thinking, I put honor upon that. I put my power upon that. I put my mercy upon that. And for all that to be betrayed, I'm a jealous God. That's mine. I put the stamp. He told us whenever he wrote in Ezekiel 16, I believe it was, he said, Israel, when I found you, you were in a puddle of your own blood. Nobody had cut your umbilical cord. Nobody had salted you. Nobody had cradled you. But whenever I seen you in that mess, I said live. And I took you in my arms. And I washed you off. And I applied the salt where the salt Need I did all that. I'm jealous over you. Israel was always something that was vitally important. Amen to the Lord. She belonged to him. It was his special possession. 
his unique treasure. But as that was in the Old Testament, so is the church in the New Testament. Paul spoke of the godly jealousy that we can have. He said to the Corinthian church, he said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He said, for I have espoused you, the church, to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. God says, there's something about me being the one and the only, alone, by myself, and being respected and honored, worship and praise and bow down to on that premise. So when we consider everything I've said up to this point in time, folks, we go to the New Testament scripture and we understand then why God is so determined in the Sermon on the Mount to tell those that are hearing his message that day that they cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, I know we look, well, that means wealth or that means riches, and that seems to be what God is dealing with at this time. As a matter of fact, mammon is a Syriac word. Amen. It is a word that was actually, it's a given name to an idol that was worshipped. It was a god of riches, and its name was mammon. So we're talking in reality, not just wealth and riches, but another god, so to speak. Right place, just uh, juxtaposed, right next to side. Amen. The one true, holy, living God. And in this episode in the Sermon on the Mount, it seems as though the focus is on wealth and the focus is on possession, the focus on material goods and riches. But I tell you tonight, the focus just could have easily been on anything else. The focus could have been on something else because the basic idea of what Christ was trying to relay to those who were listening to him was this. You cannot serve two masters. He's saying it's gonna come at some fork in the road that one's gonna pull more on you than the other has pulled upon you. One is gonna have a greater influence in your life than the other has influence in your life. And eventually, there's only gonna ultimately be one that's going to be your master. You cannot serve two masters. It's with that understanding that I go back to the Old Testament. Look at the story that I read to you here this evening, which was just a clip of it. There is a king that's in control at this time by the name of Ahaz. He is, under all circumstances, a bad king. He has followed four good kings that preceded him. He comes into that office of kingship, and he now is a bad king over Judah, over the southern kingdom. The Bible, if I can set the context and the setting for you here this evening that we can glean the best of understanding of what's going on. The king of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of this time, and the king of Syria, the Bible says, were in a league together with one another. They were in a league together. They were joining forces to come against Judah to come against Ahaz. And because Ahaz feared that they would overtake him, feared that something would happen to him, Ahaz, who was a descendant of David, called himself together a foreign alliance as well. He called together the king of Assyria to come on his side. This king's name, you don't have to repeat it, is Tilgath-Pileser. Isn't that a name that made me kid? Tilgath-Pileser was what this king Ahaz said, come along beside me. They have a league over there. They're coming against me. You come over and yoke arms with me and we'll be a league together as well. But there was something that went drastically wrong whenever he asked for this league because he told Tilgath-Pileser this. He says, I'll be your servant 
and I'll be your son. You know what he's saying? If he's saying, I'll be your servant, he's saying, you be my master. If he's saying, I'll be your son, he's saying, you be my daddy. The one who was a descendant of David, who had God as his master, God as the orderer of all things, now he's saying, wait a minute, I'm gonna try to balance some allegiance here. I'm gonna try to balance the scales here. King of Assyria, I'll be your son and I'll be your servant because I need your protection right now. I need your help right now. Rather than running to God, thinking that that would not be a possibility, he says, I need your control and I need your protection right now in my life. Well, as the story would go, Assyria came. Tilgath, Pileser fought. They overtook Syria. They overtook the center of Syria called Damascus. They overtook that area and that king made some type of political seat out of the place of Damascus. The Bible says that Ahaz being in league with him then went to Damascus, this political seat that he had set up and while he was walking through the concourses of the city, the Bible says something caught his eye. It was a place. It was a place of worship. What caught his eye as he was at that place, he didn't go there with this intent, but something snafued him, caught his eye. The Bible says as he went here and there, he what caught his eye was a pagan altar and he looked at that pagan altar and he says you know what that, that looks mighty fine I like the design of that I like the pattern of that I like the dimensions of that and the Bible says that he got out a piece of paper now I'm improvising here a little bit he got out a piece of paper and he began to write down the dimensions and made a little sketch of the design and got it all down and wrote it together and he sent it back home and he sent it back to his priest and he said priest in a little letter here priest I want you to make us one one of these. I want you to make us one of these altars and put it in our tabernacle and put it right there in our temple, right beside the brazen altar. Just put this altar that came from a pagan god, a worldly system, put it right by our altar in the temple and in the tabernacle. Uriah, I'd really like you to do this. Now here is a problem, folks. Here is a problem. Uriah, the priest, gets the word but never raises a red flag to Ahaz over his request. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Uriah built the altar according to what the king had sent unto him. Let me pause here for a moment and just make this statement. We'll go on. But it's very dangerous for the church to start imitating the world. Because when that starts to happen... One person quoted one time, he said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Flattery is nothing but praise or overabundant praise. Imitation is the sincerest form of praise or flattery. Whenever that King Ahaz said, I'd like one of those altars back in our temple, and he wanted to imitate it for dimension and for the way that it looked, you know what he was doing? Giving praise to their altar above his altar. Divided allegiance began to creep in. Am I doing okay? I have a problem. I have a problem that Uriah the priest never raised a red flag concerning the desires of this king whenever it was improper to have any other altar but the one altar that was in the temple. God's very, very fluid concerning this oneness things in many respects. And he had one altar 
that the blood was to be sacked. The blood was supposed to be, to be let out of the animal upon only one altar, one way, amen, through that altar. Just one, not two, just one. But he had a divided allegiance that he was going to have to deal with. What troubles me is this, folks, because I see in other stories concerning the judges, there was one time there was a man by the name of Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. The Bible says that he was going to go burn incense in the tabernacle but him burning incense in the tabernacle him doing that was not appropriate for him to do and the Bible says this that the chief priest Azariah and 80 other priests whenever he walked in about ready to do something that was not appropriate for him to do the chief priest and those 80 other priests followed him into that tabernacle and the Bible plainly says they withstood Uzziah, because what he was about ready to do was not appropriate and it was not proper. And he had this mentality, I think I'm just gonna, he got mad in his spirit. He was wroth with the priests. He was wroth with the 80 priests. And the Bible says that there came a little white upon his head. He became a leper standing right before them. Amen, and he was a leper until the day he died. I said all of that to say this. It was a different time and a different place. But whenever there was something that inappropriate was going on, the man of God could stand forward and say hey this isn't right this isn't the way it should be done you can't do this I'm asking where are the men of God like Uriah where are the men of God that's fell prey like Uriah that whenever somebody's about ready to divide allegiance we need somebody with a backbone unlike Uriah that will stand up and say hey it's not happening in my turf it's not happening around here you but that wasn't Uriah. He said, I'll just do it, king. I'm not tooting my own horn, but listen, it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and we need men of God in churches. This is for every pastor. We need men of God in churches that can say, that's not right, that's okay, that's a little shady, that's compromise, because let me tell you, there is an impossibility with divided allegiance. If we allow it to flourish, there's only gonna one to rise to the top. There's only, and it's whoever we subject ourselves, our servants to obey. We gotta watch it. I need somebody in my life that can call a hand on something. When it's not right, when it's inappropriate, that will withstand, if you will, the divided allegiances that we may sometimes try to even protect in our lives. So Uriah builds it according to the pattern that the king had sent. No word spoken about it. Said, done, no king. The king comes home. Here's the new altar in the temple of the most holy, righteous, only God. He says, Uriah, we're going to bring our sacrifices to the new altar. They called it the great altar. Anything's new is always perceived as great. He says, we're going to do our sacrifices. You take the sacrifices that's for me, we'll do them at this altar. Not only that, all the sacrifices of the people, the daily sacrifices, the sacrifices of new moons and festivals, all of those things, we're going to do it right at this altar. We are then going to be sacrificing and worshiping at this new altar. But look at verse 15 of 2 Kings 16. That last little phrase again. And the brazen altar, that's the old altar. That's God's altar. That's his one and only altar. 
He said, that brazen altar, he said, shall be for me, King Ahaz, to inquire by. He says, we're having the new altar. We're going to do all of our praise and our worship and our sacrifices and our offerings at the new altar. But don't get rid of the old altar because the old altar is where I'm going to inquire. The old altar is where I'm going to seek the guidance of God at the old altar. We can worship him at this worldly altar. We can worship him at this worldly altar, the thing that caught my eye. We can have our allegiance way heavy over here on the worship side concerning the worldly altar. He says, but this altar, don't get rid of it. Don't, don't push it out because there might come some times that we need some guidance and you and I both know we'll never be able to get that from the new altar. We gotta get that from the old Ooh, someone say amen. amen. <laughs> we want to worship at the altar that's pleasing to us, but we'll seek God at the altar that's pleasing to him. Hallelujah. We want to worship at a similar altar that the world worships to and sacrifices on and has their sacrifice, but don't remove the other altar totally just yet. Just shove it to one side. Just place it right beside the new altar. Let those altars be there side by side. What? That's a divided allegiance. There should have only been one altar. It's already getting divided here. We'll have our choice. This is like multiple choice. On the days I want to sacrifice here, I'll sacrifice here. But if I need to hear from God, I'm going to the old altar. When I need guidance from God, I'll go to the God-sanctioned, God-blessed altar. The question that I pose for us in this hour is this. Who in the world are we, the church, that we would inquire by an altar we don't worship at? That we'll be quick to seek for guidance from God at the altar that he prescribed, but won't worship him at that altar. Because the old altars, according to God's plan, the old altar was just like God gave it to David. And just like the altar before it, the pattern of the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was according to God's plan. <laughs> Ponder with me for a moment. Isn't it pretty telling today? that some will take their liberty to worship whatever and however, but they always keep a path open to the true altar because they never know where trouble, difficulty, heartache is going to arise and they're going to need some guidance. Oh, you're not telling me anything. I've seen people live like hell, but they'll keep just a little bit of heaven involved in case they need something to lean on or a crutch to grab or some provision for their life. They're always going to keep a little allegiance over here because they don't want to shut that off because they know if they're going to hear from heaven, it'll be through that. If God's going to speak, it's going to come through that. If there's it, oh my God. I got to keep the old altar because there may be some troubles that may come down the road and I need to inquire of it. Things may get turbulent and difficult at times and I need the old altar that I can talk to God from there. I'll reserve it for when the altar of the world cannot and will not do. You know, you would think it wouldn't take rocket science at that mode 
if you're keeping it on that premise, you don't think it'd take rocket science to believe, then you know what? I probably don't even need this new thing. My concept as a preacher is this. If it's good enough to inquire of and get direction from, then it's good enough to worship at. If he's good enough to cry out whenever your babies are sick and whenever you're in a car accident, if he's good enough to lean on when you don't have the finances to make it through another week, then he's good enough during the high times and the low times to raise up your voice and bring an offering, a sacrifice to the self-same altar unto the Lord. This is like another mode. This is just like another division. Because all throughout the judges, the people always retained the altar. And then in their moments of crisis, it wasn't on a high hill somewhere that you found them. In their moment of crisis, it wasn't in the temple of Baal or Asherah that you found them. You found them in the house of God. Where? At the good, all proven and true altar. But they tried to jungle. Try, try to, not jungle, but juggle. These altars, these allegiances to God and to these other things that were false gods, if you could even call them that, there's no such thing as another God. Just like Paul said, there's no other gospel. They call it that. They put labels and names on it, but there is no such. And so it's real life circumstances then that come down sometimes and unveil the impossibility of divided allegiances. Bear with me here just for a moment. American children of foreign parents can be in the United States what's called dual citizens. Be dual citizens. Depending upon the rules of maybe the other country that they are from. This status is placed upon them or conferred upon them when an individual is a citizen's of two countries at the same time. A website, newcitizen.us, describes the potential benefits to being a dual citizen. Among them are these. There is the privilege of voting in both countries. There is the privilege of owning property in both countries. There's the privilege of having, now today, government health care in both countries. But the United States Department of State puts forth that the United States government, listen now, does not encourage dual citizenship because of the problems it may cause, particularly that Claims of other countries on dual national U.S. citizens may conflict with the U.S. law and dual nationality may limit the United States government's efforts to assist or reprimand citizens of another country. 
And so they state this concerning the U.S. Department of State. They note this. It says where a dual national is located. In other words, where the citizen actually lives generally has a stronger claim to that person's allegiance. So they said, man, you, you might be, have voting rights in both countries, be able to have property in both countries, have government health care in both countries, but we got a problem because what is allowed in one country may transgress the laws of another. What's not allowed in one country, amen, may be allowed in another. So we have problems then concerning the laws of the land because they might be very well a law-abiding citizen in that country, but the same action would make them a transgressor in America. And so we don't think it's wise that you have dual citizenship. Because all the perks that it may provide, there are some drawbacks that's bigger than all of that. And besides, wherever that person frequents, goes, and lives is probably going to have the biggest foothold in their life. Watch me now. Ahaz, the priests, all those are coming into a temple. And that first piece of furniture they are coming to is old altar, new altar. The new altar was put in the exact location that the old altar had been at. The place that God said, that's where I wanted. But they were approached when they entered in. They were approached with two pieces of furniture, two altars, when there's just supposed to be one. Hear me today. But they are going to do daily sacrifices at the new altar. They're going to be, do the sacrifices of new moons here and all the different seven festivals that the Jews have. They're doing their sacrifice. Which altar are they frequenting more? Which altar? Amen. Because you know at this stage in the game, they might even care less about the guidance of God. So they're constantly spending all their time frequenting this altar, sacrificing here. If I may live in right over here at this altar, and if that's the case, that is the world that's going to have the biggest strong and foothold in their life. The altar that they... Am I doing all right? Oh, great, wonderful, glad, glad you said so. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 17. Listen to me here. I want you to show, I'm trying to illustrate here that it is an impossibility for divided allegiance. An impossibility. I don't want you to have, have the veil put over your eyes and thinking that it's something that's possible or that can be got by with. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. It's impossible for two master servanthood. It's impossible for divided allegiance. I want you to note what starts to happen whenever you think you're juggling giving just as much here as you are over here. Honoring this just as much as you're honoring that. I want you to show you that in the consequences and in the results, the true story is told. The Bible says in 2 Kings 16, now look at verse number 17. Ahaz has his two altars. They've been frequenting the one. I'm keeping this for just whenever I need God and I need to hear from God. I'll keep that one. The Bible says, look what he does. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off them, took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it and put it upon the pavement of stones. What this verse is illustrating to us in the temple of Solomon, 
things were a little bit different than the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there was one brazen labor. But in the temple of Solomon, there was what was known as a huge, and it gives the dimension of it, which is also uh, different than the way it was in the tabernacle. The dimensions of the molten sea, it was called. It was huge. It was tall. It sat on the backs of, uh, 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 of lions almost, as it were. Uh, Twelve of them, this molten sea set up on them. And then five on this side were basins that were also high and lifted up. Five basins. And over here were five basins that were lifted up. Now, the ten basins, five on each side, was for the purpose of cleaning the sacrifices. But the brazen laver still that was in the middle, that molten sea, was for the cleansing of the priest. Ahaz has his two altars now. He's already messed with the first piece of furniture. And now he goes to the second pieces of furniture. And that stand, those, 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 those lions that that brazen laver was on that molten sea, he removed them and set the brazen laver down on the ground. All of these different ten basins, five on each side, that were elevated up. He took the stands that were elevated and he put it down on the ground. Whenever you look at the tabernacle or the temple, that second stage of furniture is where the water is. That's where water baptism took place. It's figurative of water baptism. Whenever you got divided allegiances, it won't be long until you lower your estimation of water baptism. You'll take it from its highly exalted place and it'll be low. And it won't matter if it's Jesus' name or if it's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we don't even care if you get immersed in water. See, there's something going on here. I thought I was paying equal honor here and equal honor there. No, no, no. It's told in the consequences. He lowered all of the brazen labors. They're sitting now on the pavement. They don't have their highly exalted place anymore. He's lowered his estimation. Woo! Of the essentiality of the labor in the tabernacle, in our process to the holies of holies, the presence of God. They're all put on the pavement. The impossibility for Ahaz was this. He would give into an altar that he frequented with his sacrifices the most. The daily sacrifice was, the moons, the feasts, all of that was taking place. He was catering to that more than the other. And the story was told then what he did then with the brazen lavers. And he set them down at the ground. Because I'll tell you this, divided allegiance will always show up in a person's baptism. And stated like this, divided allegiances will always show up in false doctrine. Uh-huh. That ain't all though. Look at verse 18. Zach, the Bible says, and this is not something greatly spoken of in the scripture. There's not like a bunch of cross-references you can give concerning this, this item right here concerning the temple of Solomon. But the Bible says, and the covert for the Sabbath that they had built in the house. Talking about the temple. And the king's entry without. Ahaz turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. In other words, what there was, there was a covert, uh, covert or covered canopy area in the temple that the king would sit in when he was in the house of God. It was a place that was covered and shaded for he and his family whenever he attended the house of God. Not only that, there was a special entrance into the temple that the king only and the king's family entered into 
into the temple by that entrance. But the Bible says, because Ahaz is pandering and giving, giving allegiance not just to the altar, but to the king of Assyria. The Bible says that he closed his own entrance. He blockaded, cut off his own entrance into the temple and just distracted his own seat and the seat of his family in God's house. Ahaz says, I'm going to cut off my entrance into the temple and I'm going to cut off my own place to set in the temple of God's house. Let me say it like this. Divided allegiance, they're impossible, folks. They're impossible because divided allegiances won't only cause you to lower your doctrines, amen, from true to false doctrines, but they'll eventually turn away your entrance into the house of God and your participation in the house of God. You'll cut it off for something of lesser quality. And to go a degree further, when these divided allegiances, see, he didn't have a priest Uriah in his life that was telling him wrong. He was saying, we'll go along with whatever you want, king. Yeah, well, that's what we'll do. Yeah, that sounds good, buddy, old pal. Whenever you don't have, whenever you don't have nobody keeping you in check, over what may be perceived as divided allegiances in your life, not only will you tamper with your belief, your loyalties, your entrance into the house of God, but you'll begin to tamper with other people's beliefs and loyalties to the house of God. I got scripture for this here, folks. Second Chronicles 28 and verse 24, the Bible says, here's Ahaz in his rampage of divided allegiance, quote unquote. Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of God, house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem and every, every several city of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods and, and provoked to anger the Lord, his fathers. See, what started out as we're going to try to give proper attention to this and this has turned into now we don't just have an extra altar, but we're throwing altars anywhere we can find to put an altar. And it has no holy or sacred tie to it. And now, not only is he no, now it's beyond now just trying to make sure oh, I, I want to do good with this one. I'm going to do good with that one. I'm going to be there when I need to be there. And when I don't, you know, I'm going to make both worlds happy. But that's not the case now. It was impossible to keep a divided allegiance. The Bible says he was putting incense to other gods and he didn't even care if he provoked the Lord God to anger. Matter of fact, he was doing it with the intent of if he could. Someone say amen. I'm trying to get there. I'm hastening to. I'm doing good, really, folks. I have spilled out so much in just about 45 minutes already. Consider, consider the closure here of Isaiah, Ahaz, rather. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 23, speaking of him, for he sacrificed and to the gods of Damascus. We know that from the very start. Sacrifice unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. Hold on. What do we got here? And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them, that they may help me. But, the word of contrast, you need a lasso tonight. I'm going to worship them, because I made a league with them, and it seemed like everything turned out right. I'm going to worship them. 
they helped me, but they were the ruin of him and all and of all Israel. Folks, God is infinitely jealous for the honor of his name and his person. And when we don't adopt that ourselves concerning soul allegiance and loyalty to God, he or even those things that we thought were, man, this is really helping us out. These other things, it hasn't really hurt us all that much. Those things that we are now putting confidence in will turn around and be the ruin of us. The Bible says, for example, and I don't have this up there, Brother Zach, but in Ezekiel 16, verses 38 through 40, and I'm just kind of tiptoeing through the tulips here, okay. He speaks, God does, to the faithlessness of Israel and tells them under no certain terms these words. He says, Israel, they're unfaithful. What are they? They're divided allegiance. They're divided their allegiance. He says, Israel... He said, I will judge you, listen to it now, as women who break wedlock and shed blood are judged. He says, I'll bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. This is important. And I will give you into the hand of your lovers. I'll give you into the hand of your lovers and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber. He says a little later, they shall strip you. Who? Those that... You have put your allegiance toward those who are now your lovers. They will strip you of your clothes, take you for your fair jewels, and they'll leave you naked and they'll leave you bare. So I won't do that, but I'm going to turn you over to what you wanted. And it's going to just bring down the cat of nine tails upon you, leave you naked, destitute, and leave you stripped of any dignity. That is going to ruin your life because you desired to have a divided allegiance. They're going to bring up a host against you, Israel. They're going to cut you in pieces with swords. Who's going to do that? Those who you call your lovers. Those, woo! Those who you call your lovers. Those who you have affection. Those things that you have had affection for, they're going to be the ruin of you. You'll stand with me this evening, and I'll, I'll hasten to a close. I want you to listen to the warning of God here, then, in that scripture. What it says is this, is that the true godly jealousy, or the jealousy of God, the jealousy of God for your undivided love, undivided allegiance, and devotion his jealousy for that will always have the last say in your life because whatever lures your affections away from God with whatever type of deceptive attraction that the altar had it kind of looked nice it was a pattern that was flattering enough that it caught the eyes of Ahaz that very thing that attracted you to begin with it's going to come back for a second pass where it attracted you the first time it's going to strip you bare it's going to cut you in pieces and the moral of the story is this then folks 
it is a horrifying thing to use your God-given life to commit to adultery against the Almighty. Having a divided allegiance. In the real world, in the real world, when people start to fancy around with more than one spouse, more than one lover, the outcome is usually not pots at the end of a rainbow of go. There's broken homes and families, deranged children, mentally, mentally just complications, sometimes substance abuse then is their go-to. It's usually not something that is pretty whenever you try to divide the allegiance that should be lone and loyal only to another. Let me tell you, it doesn't end in a very, very happy ending either whenever we divide the allegiance for the king of glory that we said I'm yours Lord and I'm, I'm, I'm forsaking all others and it's me and you God divided allegiance divided allegiance cause you to start considering maybe that that false doctrine maybe it, it is okay maybe that, that maybe that is the way it is divided allegiance will cause you to snuff out your entrance into the temple Divided allegiance will also cause you to do that for your family, your place in God's house. But it will also cause you to superimpose all that on that on others around you. You know why? Because misery loves company. Nobody wants to go whether to heaven or hell by themselves. Box it up. Close the entryways. Close the entryways. And that little thing that you're rocking your arms, that you're so attracted to, that you love, it's going to grow up going to put a hard thumb of pressure on your life it's going to strip you of everything you're worth it's going to maim you it's going to ruin you the Bible says Ahaz died in that situation he died in that episode of being what somebody that was a servant somebody that was a son but not to God and to the thing that he said he would be a servant the one that he tried to manipulate both at the same time listen to Pastor Knight it's impossible to do that it's impossible you might feel like man I'm getting I'm winging it I'm doing it pastor I don't know what you're talking about I'm doing it let me tell you so deceived you are so deceived you are so deceived that only future and time will tell when you can cast over your shoulders and look at your own personal life that's been ruined by a divided allegiance it can't Let's bow our heads in this place here this evening. Please, all across this place, I feel the Holy God in this place. I feel the Holy Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.